Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Gary Winnell. Gary, it's great to see you. How are you? And tell us what you're thinking about these days. Good. Well, a couple of things. Um, Firstly, after something like 35 years of writing and publishing about media and sport and related matters... Um, I've kind of drifted into a situation where rather than take advantage of the Paris Olympics by being there, um, I'm enabling two two friends of ours, um, Jules and Dave, let's call them, who (laughs) are um, uh, going to be there uh, observing the Olympics. Um, This is partly because my collaborator of the last three Olympics, John Horne, has decided he doesn't want to um, do a, a fourth edition of Understanding the Olympics. And I didn't really fancy doing one on my own. Um, partly for some years, sorry, Toby, this is a long rambling answer. but No, no, some, no, it's a, it's a short answer yeah. and it's already fascinating. For some years, I've been toying with the idea of doing a final collection of experiential essays about mm-hmm. my encounters with sport, both live and via media as a way of, if you like, saying goodbye. And it's kind of in, inspired by Paul Gallico, who, of course, wrote Farewell to Sport before he left sports reporting to take up screenwriting hmm. um, and no, uh, novel writing. So that's kind of on the stocks. There's a first draft. Um, I'm very unsure of whether this is a um, a book for academics or a book for um, general readers. I kind of favour the latter. Um, so that's one of the things on my mind. Mm-hmm. I'm actually sort of, after all these years of writing about sport, I don't think I have much more I want to say. Uh, and the second is because I've in effect by accident and because I, I think I'm quite good at it, become a kind of playwright monkey. Um, what I mean mm-hmm. by that is I've written two or three plays, but I haven't been able to get any of them staged yet. Discovered the easiest thing in the world is to write a play compared to getting one staged. Uh, but that, you know, if, you're, if your question is partly angled, what are you going to be doing with the next six months? It's probably trying to promote the two plays I've written and finish the five that are kind of in various stages of gestation. I've been fortunate enough to read one of these scripts that you've written. Oh, yeah. And I, uh, I found it very compelling, very compelling and inventive. It's called uh, Vladimir, Vladimir and Jerome, folks. It's it's, it's on in, Kindle on Amazon. In, oh, is it okay? And so it's it's Lenin meets Jerome K. Jerome. That's right. And it's uh, a bit like as if you as if one bumped into Marx in the reading room of the British Museum. Yes, exactly, and especially if one was a kind of sort of upper middle class fop monkey um, who was. Um, really wanting to write a serious book, having written a very successful comedic one. And in a sense, this takes you back, although at a different angle, from what you were doing, I think, after you left school, Gary, which was you worked in cultural production. I mean, you were a media technician, right? Yeah, that, that's right. Um, I I imagine this is not that unusual in middle-class kids. Your father was an academic, right? Mm-hmm. My parents just kind of assumed I would go to university. And when I think back, it was never discussed as a decision. It was just an assumption. And now unconsciously, looking back, I think unconsciously I sabotaged it um, and ensured that I would be turned down by all six of the universities to which I applied. Best thing that ever happened to me because I would have, I would probably have had a lovely time, but I would have wasted the experience in terms of education. When I went in 75, well, age of 20, well, 25, I suppose, it was to what claims to be the world's first ever media studies course at Polytechnic of Central London, and it was perfect for me. Um, but in the intervening years, I kind of... <laughs> I recall it dusting around. It seems now much more programmatic. Um, my first job was at Hornsey Art College. Um, and it was brilliant because my 
technically my job was to look after the stores, which opened for an hour in the morning and an hour in the afternoon, right? So it wasn't a terribly demanding role. I also projected all the movies, which was sometimes yes. t- 10 a week, um, yeah. certainly mm-hmm. five a week. So I saw a, a fantastic range of films in a very short time. I learned so much about editing, about um, uh, photography, about developing photographs, about editing film, about video. Um, it was like an education. It was brilliant. Um, second job, uh, after I quit because I was in a band and that delusional sense people in bands sometimes have that you're about to actually start getting gigs and making money. I thought we'd all agreed to give up our jobs and concentrate full time, and it turned out I was the only one that did that. Um, so after six months, I can I'd laugh go, now. Yes, I can laugh now. Um, I went back to work at Polytechnic of Central London, which was a banal job, um, audiovisual aids. Um, didn't really learn much except how to drink, uh, how to sneak out at after lunch for a second bout at the alcohol popping around the corner for what we refer to as a pot of tea. Um, but I also met um, a lovely man called Chris Brookman, who was head of the American Studies Centre. And it, he it was who told me there was a degree in media studies being uh, validated as we spoke. And I instantly thought this course is for me and applied for it and got on it. Um, I've missed something out in this chronology. What was it? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Meeting Chris happened at that time. Finding out about the course was two years down the line. In that intermediate two years, I was in Dartington, um, Dartington Art College. A Difficult to describe for listeners who won't know it, but it was a kind of rural communal activity or set of activities, not unlike in some ways the Black Mountain College, I suppose, um, in that it attracted originally uh, not a, a few European emigres. It was founded in the 20s originally um and I, very unusually for a british art college it combined fine arts theater and dance and music so it had an unusual combination of skills and it had all this electronic music equipment and it was like being given a brief glimpse of the sort of key to the dragon's horde they took me around and they said these are the slide projectors these are the tape recorders these are the speakers and I opened the door this is the electronic music equipment like, what there's a moog series three which for the people who know was the big state-of-the-art moog there was only one other one in the country at that point there was an arp 2600 again possibly one of only two or three in britain and in short i wanted to get my hands on this stuff so i i took out what was pretty mediocre salary and me, a city boy, hardly ever been out of London apart from, um, well, later on, two years in Birmingham. But that boy, not really out of London at all. Spent two, two and a half years living in, first in Dartington itself, then in Totnes in Devon. Um, and uh, it was fascinating. It was interesting. There's a degree of piracy involved in how we managed to build a studio. Um, and again, I learned a lot. Um, but that was the kind of the end, really. I didn't know at the time my dalliance with music. And now we're back at the point where we go to um, study media studies. Mm-hmm. 75. So you had a a very pragmatic entree to this, yet an unusual one, in that your father was a, a pioneer in the field of the study of popular culture in general and film in particular, but also music. And yet, as you said, in a sort of act of uh, incipient but in almost implicit rebellion through, in inverted commas, failure, you did not do what had been laid down for you. That's right. But you did work in the media. And then when it, this, when it was time for you, having unleashed these eatable bonds, as it were, to decide that you did want to study in a formal way, you took that media route. Um, yeah, to the extent I, I knew about techniques of production. I didn't, in the sense most people understand working for the media, mm. I didn't really do that until the 80s. Um, but yeah, I knew much more than the average straight from school student 
about how to edit tape, how to make a program, how to all, all that oh, stuff. Absolutely. So and, I was pretty com- I was pretty comfortable with it. And more than many media studies teachers in those days, actually. In the... Yeah, and you know, in some ways, well, I don't know. It's it's difficult comparing because of course all these really useful skills I picked up that I keep mentioning um, by the middle of the digit, beginning of the digital age, were were rapidly redundant. You yeah. know, I mean, nobody edits tape physically anymore with a razor blade and a little metal device. Um, and I was extremely good at it after a while. Um, so yeah, I knew skills which then were still current, but. Mm. Were not going to be the basis of a long term, long term career in in themselves. So off you trot to what was then called uh, a polytechnic, now a university, uh, University of Westminster, I guess it would be now. That's right. Originally and Central London. What was it like being? You were twenty five. You said I think. Yep. When everybody else was seventeen or eighteen, did that yep. make a difference? Do you think? At first, um, I later discovered the students who, on the first day, set eyes on me, assumed I was a lecturer. I mean, I had a beard, um, which was sort of much less usual at that point in time than it has been more recently. Um, and I had a um, home, um, uh, which my then partner was buying, and we eventually were sharing. Um, so, you know, I must have felt different to them. They, on the other hand, didn't feel, they just felt like a bunch of playmates. And we very rapidly bonded. We were very lucky. Um, it was the first year, there were only 17 or so of us, maybe 19. And there must have been 11 staff. So the kind of staff-student ratio was pretty idyllic. Um, you know, a, a lecture was 19 people in the room. A seminar was six, right? Now, you know, most people, I imagine, at least in the UK, I can't speak for the USA, would think that was just unimaginable these days when your lecture is probably 90 or more and your seminar classes are are 30. Um, But that's the way it was. It meant we did a lot of socialising with staff. But also we rapidly, maybe some, some people may have had a horrible experience. I can't speak for them. I ended up in a gang of about six or seven who used to hang out a lot. Uh, still in touch with at least three of them, four of them. Um, And I don't recall, of that six or seven, one other was a mature student, just a bit younger than me, who, totally coincidentally, I'd known since I was 11, um, but different world. Um, Most of the others had maybe either had a gap year or come straight. So I was... Mm years older than most of them but it kind of you know it didn't matter then it didn't matter now and not in my mind in the same way that the lecturers who of course like all adults to a a young adult seemed impossibly old um you know i realized over the years some of them were only about two or three years older than me yeah yeah and you know now they've become some of them have become friends and it's you know we're respectively 73 and 75 and you know so when did you go on to further academic work and to do your doctorate, Gary? Third year, I was um, specialising in television in the practical side and in the theoretical side, I was doing a dissertation on football crowd behaviour in the press. Yeah? And I put a huge amount of work into it. It was drawing on people like Cohen and Young and folk devils and moral panics and critical I, criminology, yeah, critical deviance, deviant studies, yeah. People. And I spent an immense amount of time at the National Newspaper Archive, looking at newspaper coverage from the fifties onwards, really trying to pinpoint when do they start becoming football hooligans? Because originally they were the football rowdies or the football crazies. It was a while before the hooligan word became the dominant signifier, and that was going. I guess well because it got a, a top mark and indeed uh, it, they asked to include it in the first year uh, issues of Media, Culture and Society, which is the journal they just launched. The thing is, though, I was kind of interested in working in television and I did my final sort of piece, um, sort of a half-hour documentary. Um 
And the television lecturer was going to introduce me to all sorts of people. He said, you know, I think you've got real promise. I'll introduce you to David Elstein, for example. And then the poor guy had a stroke. Um, not in a position to introduce anybody to anybody for a while. Um, and at the same time, I'd applied to do postgrad at two places, the Leicester Centre for Mass Communication Research and the Birmingham, the fam- more famous Birmingham CCCS, Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies, then being run by Stuart Hall. And I was nervous of the centre. I thought it was going to be full of extremely intelligent, high-powered, very political people, and I wouldn't be able to sort of hold my own. I later discovered that's exactly what most people thought who went to the centre, including Richard Dyer. Um, uh, but at the time, I was intimidated, and I, I was offered a place by both. And James Curran, my, um, one of my lecturers at PCL, when he heard I was dithering, he said, are you crazy? Turning down the CCCS, that would be like having had the chance to be in the Frankfurt School. You know, you must do it. And that was very generous of James, because as you probably know, you know, he's not been the greatest friend of the, um, some of the cultural studies approaches that came out of the centre. However, so I I went and, you know, I spent three years there, Um and the thing that was most awkward and surprisingly, because Stuart had known my father and because I'd known Stuart when I was sort of seven or eight. They wrote maybe, that book together. Popular. Yeah, pop, The Popular Arts, 1964. And, you know, he was around a lot, especially because they were working on that. And um, so he'd known me in effect as a child. And I don't think either of us, till the last time I saw him, not long before he died, ever quite found a way of just being sort of easy. And I could see how he was with other CCS students. And I don't think either of us quite got over the oddness. Um, you know, he, this man built me cardboard, castles out of cardboard one Christmas. Um, and it's sort of hard to go from that to sort of arguing about ideology. <laughs> Maybe it shouldn't be, but, um, you know. Oh, that's a very telling story, I think, and I greatly appreciate your sharing it with us. So you go there and you're intimidated before you get there. And then when you are there, in a sense, you're infantilized, not by him or by you, but by history and the difficulty of leaving history behind. Yeah. Would that be fair to say? It it wasn't a, a major factor in my presence there. I mean, it was the the thing was tremendously exciting, tremendously interesting. The sad truth is what I think for an awful lot of students, right from the start, they got so absorbed in the collective projects. The centre was organised around a series of work groups around topics. There was the media group, the state group, um, uh, women in society group, and so on, history group. And most people got so involved in these collective projects that they didn't make as much progress on their their own individual PhD work um, as they might. And, you know, the the completion rate was relatively low. Now, there wasn't much pressure on these things in those days compared to what there is now, where you're only allowed three years and you have to finish. Um, But, you know, so which is great when it's going well. First year, fantastically exciting. The media group was very big, maybe 25 people, many of whom were people who weren't who were just coming because they'd been at the centre and they were still interested. Um, huge amount of energy, good project about popular television, moving on from the centre's previous preoccupation with current affairs, uh, led by Stuart, um, lots of subgroups and various things. And... Then at the end of my first year, Stuart left and the media group shrunk to about five. Um, I don't think this was anything to do with Stuart going. It was simply that a lot of the people had been hanging on, like Alan Clark, I remember, um, just stopped coming. They got jobs probably. They had other commitments. Maybe they had children, but suddenly they couldn't make it to Birmingham every Friday. And it 
five people who, you know, I count them all as friends, um, uh, got on with them all. But the fact is you have five different perspectives on how to do work on the media. And each week one of us will present a paper and we discuss it. And then next week somebody else will present a paper from a totally different theoretical position on a totally different theme. Mm. And about halfway through the year, I thought, you know, we're really not making any progress on this. Um, and it's time to sort of withdraw a little and concentrate on my own work. Mm-hmm. So I kind of did. Um got on with my PhD, which still took a huge number of years, I'm embarrassed to say, maybe eight. Um, but it's partly because once my three years' money ran out, I had to make a living, I had two children, both my parents died in that period. Um, so there's a lot going on. Um, but at the time, it was a kind of, you know, I think all of us bought into the Centre's commitment to collective work. And the books, if you, you know, you go and look at the books that came out in that period, they're all sort of really good, substantial things. But it wasn't good for working on an individual project. Um, I was lucky enough to have Richard Johnson as my supervisor once Stuart left. Stuart was brilliant, but slightly intimidating because you'd come out thinking, oh, God, there's sort of 20 or 30 things I really should have read for this one little essay that that I haven't done. Um, Richard, who knew very little about my topic, always sent me away feeling that I was doing really good stuff and he was sort of looking forward to hearing the next instalment. At that point in the thesis, that's kind of what you want. And this was sports-related? Yeah. You know, this is... Life is is in part a series of accidents, like my sort of bifurcating roots going into television or going into academia. And this was another one in a way. All right, you know, I was interested in sport. My family were all interested in sport um, when I was growing up. Um, you know, I grew up in a household where cultural and political matters were discussed routinely at the table and just sort of sitting around. And we had... From the time my parents came to London in 58, a lot of friends who were intellectual were involved in the new left. So I was used to hearing arguments about the Wilson government, uh, but also about cultural politics. And my father's close friend, Alan Lovell, and his partner, Terry Lovell, for a while lived upstairs. So he saw a lot of, lot of them. Um, so I'm not saying, you know, it, it wasn't overdetermined by all of this, but that's why I did the dissertation, I suppose, that I was interested in the, I thought the deviance, British deviance school of analysis is interesting. I thought Cohen and Young's work was interesting, but I was, so I can see how I can use this. This is Stan Cohen and Jock Young. Yeah. Um, yeah. Folk devils and moral panics and deviance amplification. Um, and then when we got to the centre, I, I was thinking, well, I probably pursue this with a work on sport and sport and the media and the impact of the media upon sport. Mm-hmm. But really, it was also partly because media group, 25 people, we all had to have sort of specialisms. And um, so I was in a little subgroup with four people, I think, looking at game shows. And it instantly struck me that just as you can talk about sport in terms of narrativization, because at least in its media representation, it always does hang on a series of stories. Um, so there's a narrative structure to the competitive game show, and the two are not dissimilar. And at that point, there seemed to be a kind of convergence with things like superstars, um, sport-based game shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, well, there's something to work with here. So it's a link between my, which we all kind of wanted, between your own work mm-hmm. and your work. So by that time, I was kind of doing what became, in the end, Fields in Vision, which was a study of the impact of the media on sport, or the way that the media prompted a transformation of sport, uh, which there were two kind of key nodes to this. Three, really. One was doing the thesis, which took me to 87, and then I turned it into a book, which took another four years. But 
before that, while I was doing the thesis, Richard Cooper at um, Pluto Press, which um, a radical publisher aimed at politicised ordinary readers rather than academics, they were proposing a series of arguments for socialism. The first batch came out in 83, just before uh, Margaret Thatcher's second election win, one of the biggest sort of um, wipeouts of the left position that's ever happened. So it'd be hard to say that the arguments for socialism came at a propitious moment for British politics. But I was asked to do one on sport. And there was money involved, I think. Or was the money involved? I think it was a small advance. But, you know, when you're, when you're broke and you no longer have a grant, whatever it was, seemed like a decent enough amount to put down my thesis and write this book. It's 40,000 words. I guess it took me two to three months. It was pretty fast writing. But they need, you know they wanted it by December, and so I did it over that term. And I suppose what it did is it it gave me a reputation. I, my name became known amongst people interested in the politics of sport around the world. Because I didn't know. You know, that wasn't my world. I, I didn't, unlike, you know, uh, my colleague and friend Alan Tomlinson, who was very much within the world of the sociology of sport from quite early on. I didn't know any of those people. I knew media sociology. I knew media sociologists like mm. Murdoch and um, Golding and Murdoch. Um, but it gave me an entree into that world. It meant my name was known as somebody who writes on this. Yeah. I suppose it's difficult now, Toby, as, as you would know, to remember that there were so few people in the 70s writing about sport from a, a left political standpoint. Oh, absolutely. Gerhard Finney, as Paul Hock, as Jean-Marie Brom. Yeah. None of whom, as far as I know, knew each other. Um, and if you cast around for reading, in a way it's easier. It's easier to do a thesis when there's not too much reading, of course. <laughs> but, you know, there really wasn't much. And then Rick Gruno came along and yes. John Hargreaves. I'm and speaking then... to Rick tomorrow, actually. Oh, give him my, give him my best wishes. Yeah. He's yeah. seen him for a while. Um, but then it was, you know, people like you and me and Tomlinson. Um, yeah. And Jenny Hargreaves. And suddenly mm. it becomes a bigger, bigger field. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I could have written the book. Uh, or the thesis if I'd started when there was a mass of reading. You know, I think it's quite intimidating. There's so much, even in a micro field, there's so much to read. And this was exactly the opposite, which meant you could get to grips with the key yeah. books really quite quickly. That is fascinating. And around this time, uh, I mean, in addition to the Pluto book that you refer to, you've got an article in Screen, um, which was then an important place to be read if you were interested in socialism and feminism and so on. And that was uh, had a big influence on me. And somewhere around in all this, you're also beginning to look specifically at the World Cup of Men's Football and the Summer Olympics, aren't you? That grew out of... The Pluto book did reasonably well, enough for them to want me to do a book on the Olympics. And at that point... I just I, I can't. I mean, A, I don't want to put my thesis aside too much. B, I really don't know, and I didn't at that stage, enough to write the kind of book that would need to cover an awful lot of areas. Mm. So I rang Alan um, Tomlinson, who I'd known at that point for about four years. And in the course of a phone call, we each, I think, identified four or five people we could ask to do a chapter. And suddenly we've got a book. So we mm. get back to Pluto and say, look, will offer to edit a book. And I tell you what's really interesting about that book is of those eight contributors plus us, who were all in various ways scufflers at the time. I mean, some of us were, like so many in the 80s, doing bits of part-time teaching. Um, some were... Sam Ramsamy was one of the contributors. And he at the time was in exile in London. He's an Indian South African who founded and ran the South African Non-Racial Olympic Committee as a kind of alternative to the apartheid. Mm -hmm. um, but nobody was sort of wildly distinguished, put it that way. 
And what's fascinating, when you go back and look, everybody who contributed to that book either became a professor, or in the case of David Treisman, a lord, or in the case of Sam, an IOC member. Um, the Olympic Committee, yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we we were by accident or design. We had a very good sort of team. Um, so the uh, elections for, in terms of socialist ideals in Britain were disastrous in the 80s but they permitted a certain level of eventual affluence for authors writing in favour of socialism. Um, is, that, is this the lesson we but, should draw? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about affluence, but advancement. Um, advancement. Yeah. Um, and we did a second one on the World Cup, which I personally thought was not quite as successful because mm. the Olympics... Quite somebody, Chris Hurd, I think, who's a television producer said to me because they did a program on channel four based on the book partly and we tried to persuade him to one of the world cup book and he said i'm not so interested in that he said the thing is the olympics has this ideology of you know it's got all this framework of peace and understanding and a mission and amateurism and so you know that against all the commercialization is an interesting story he says well you know football everybody knows it's is was has been and will be tainted by commerce in deep ways. So he was not so interested in that one. Now, can you just remind us, Gary, of the titles of those two? Projects? Yeah. Um, Five Ring Circus was the Olympics one, and Off the Ball was the um, uh, Football World Cup one. Which included, if I'm remembering correctly, an interview with Steve Koppel. Yes. Who was a prominent footballer, then became a famous manager and had done a degree in economic history and was some sort of leftist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. Um, yes, Alan interest, uh, interviewed him. I never met him, sadly. Alan interviewed him. I think he must be working at Brighton at the time. Could be wrong. And um, sitting on a hotel bedroom, I seem to remember. Sitting mm -hmm. on a hotel bed, I seem to recall. Nice. With the tape recorder between them. So with, with now three books done... And several articles. You finally decide to better finish your doctorate. Yeah. And then that becomes a very well-known book um, and really foundational in terms of how people think about the relationship between sports and the media, I think it's fair to say. Are there things that you look back on now from that book, which was the product of many years of thought and research, that seem to you to be only of their time versus things that you think are still recognisably relevant? Well, the thing it was based on is, in one sense, is a remarkably simple proposition, which was advanced by many people, including people in the sports business, like, um, oh, the head of IMG, Mark, Mark McCormick, McCormick. Um, who talked of it as a... I think he used, might have used the phrase unholy alliance. I'm not entirely sure now. But the proposition was simply that television wants sport. Sponsors want television so they can get their name on it. And sport wants the money that's involved in making deals with these people. And out of that comes a whole set of economic pressures and incentives which begin to transform sport. Mm. And I think in Britain especially, it's particularly stark and noticeable because we still had a lot of amateur sports, even into the television era. And it's very hard for sports to remain amateur in the television era because lots of money is changing hands and the people that don't get their hands on the money are the performers whose um, performances draw in the money in the first place. You can't sustain that forever. You know, you're going to get a culture of brown paper envelopes and illicit payments, which is what was going on in athletics in that period. So it's, you know, it's clearly, it's, it's not rocket science to say this is a transformational moment. And I think that holds up, except now we're at the sort of, you know, the bleak, far dark end of those transformations when football, English league football, the Premier League, it's a remarkable product. It's very successful. Everybody's, all the top clubs are constantly trying to build bigger stadiums or find more ways of get, getting people in. 
The coverage is sold around the world. Everyone wants it. Um, as a result, football as a whole is a, the most incredible television product, as a result of which the football authorities are constantly trying to shoehorn more and more competitions into the calendar. To the extent mm-hmm. player top players are lucky now to have two weeks, two weeks off in a year. That has all sorts of repercussions. It's really interesting this season. A lot of clubs have been grumbling far more than usual about injuries. And while all injuries are different, it's, it's difficult documenting there's a clear connection. But I would say almost certainly a major part of this is that they're knackered. They're overworked. Mm-hmm. Their body has been worked too hard. They can't deliver. Football's become a very intense game. It's actually the vindication of Jean-Marie Brom's fascinating work in the 70s. Brom argued that sport is a prison of measured time, that all the parameters of sport are measured as a way of tailorizing the body, squeezing the maximum productivity out of the body. And nothing is a better example of that at the moment than than top-level football. Um, Tell me this. This is something I don't understand. American football, almost uniquely, seems to have been able to resist this entirely. American football still has what we would regard as a very short season from September to January, Um, a remarkably small number of games, and yet it's a very big television sport. Television must be desperate for more American football, and yet they've managed to sort of keep it limited. Well, I think there there are a couple of things there. One is they worked out the Leninist observation was correct, namely that capitalism engages in overproduction when there is a popular whatever, Mm. in this case, television genre, you make more and more of it until it's not very good anymore, right? Think of the way in which popular genres get exhausted because instead of, you know, six Monty Pythons a year, you have to do 35, right? Um, They didn't do that. And the other thing was they had two big sports in basketball and baseball that played all the time. You know, in baseball, there's a minimum of 162 games a year per club, whereas, of course, in in, uh, gridiron football, it's 16. Mm. Uh, In addition, the owners got a bunch of sweetheart deals from local governments to promise not to move their clubs that would make their stadia bigger and more amenable to uh, incredibly inflated prices. I mean, the average earnings of a person attending, actually attending National Football League games is far in advance of what you get in any other sporting fixture in the world, whereas you can still go to Major League Baseball if you're on your uppers, right? Um, The other factor I think that's relevant here is that college football, as in American football is such a big deal. And, yes. and that, as you know, is, is another phenomenon again, uh, whereby the basic costs of nurturing players are met by the public purse in the United States, mostly public universities, some private ones, nurture the people who become NFL players, NBA players, etc. There are essentially no development costs whatsoever for clubs, unlike in something like association football or cricket or these other sports, where there is not the college route, the subsidized educational route to excellence. So they don't have the same uh, need for large sums of television money to write off the development costs of the talent. Yeah. So I think those... Those factors are all very germane here. They've decided that they want a limited product. There's very little there, so it costs a lot to get it. And one of the issues with baseball losing its status as America's pastime, in inverted commas, is that when the big money became available in the late 50s with the emergence of the coaxial cable system and hence the expansion of Major League Baseball across the Rockies, the movement of the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Brooklyn Giants to California, because suddenly the big media markets in Chicago and New York could take 
television coverage from the West Coast, that set their eyes alight, aflame, and they created more and more and more franchises. The NFL, which really emerges as some sort of national sport 20 years later, has worked out this problem with overproduction. So that's my long-winded answer. Okay, yeah, so it's limiting supply in order to keep the price nice and high. You asked about field and vision in terms of other things that still resonate, other things that were off their moment and so on. I'd say that it was of its moment to this extent that I think the modern television sport era really takes off at the point the technology matures. Mm. Once you have colour, slow motion, action replay, video editing, you've got basically the package. Um, Add to that the growing ability to get live pictures to and fro around the world. And actually since then, even that was pretty well accomplished in the 70s. And since then, there haven't been hugely transformative changes compared with the massive transformation that involved. Mm, mm -hmm. And that era, I think, ends at the time I was devastated by the fact that just after I delivered the manuscript to the publishers, um, the um, Sky deal uh, to take over the other major satellite broadcasts from Britain was announced. And shortly after that, they set up the Premier League with an exclusive television deal with Sky. I thought, oh, God, you know, the story of the century, and I've missed it by a matter <laughs> of months. But actually, it makes sense because it covered a period. And, you know, what happened since 92 is, in a sense, the beginning of a new chapter in that. So that, you know, that's fine. I think the book has two weaknesses, which reviewers have been um, have pointed out over the years. Um, the first is that it's not international enough. Um, and, you know, like, like anybody who writes, my experiential base is is me and what I've done and what I know most clearly about, which is British spectator sport. Uh, and what, while one tries to remedy that through research, inevitably the stuff you understand best and relate best is, is the stuff that you've experienced. And the second is people have often said, you know, well, this is very, very critical. You get no sense of why you're interested in sport, um, no sense of your own enjoyment. And that's... Uh, you know, it's true, and it's something, one of the reasons I want to finish what's tentatively entitled Farewell to Media Sport is because I've gone back to experience and pleasure as categories of understanding, and I'm trying really to just elucidate, yeah, this is what I found fascinating or enjoyable or extraordinary about all these various sporting experiences. Um, so, you know, there's a sort of, attempt to address that well gary we've got about five minutes left there are lots of other books you've written and and edited and contributed to like sports stars for example the olympics books with john horn i think you did another book with alan tomlinson that's a sort of sport media you know sociology textbook yeah but perhaps in those five minutes you could tell us a little bit more about these things that are concerning you now, namely this return to pleasure? Mm. Probably start at the wrong end. I mean, what I'd like to throw in is, is sports stars, which was media sports stars, which was, it was really quite pleasurable to write. Mm -hmm. um, and it was partly wanting to have something, some input into the debate about gender and gender socialization and gender difference and how boys behave and what is the relationship between the images of misbehavior in sport and the wider society. Mm. It, I really wanted to have a, give the notion of role models a bit of a kicking. Um, you know, it's, it's mm. much more complicated than that. Um, uh, you know, there's a real difference between the adults in your life being role models and the notion that some sports star or pop star that you show some fleeting interest in at some point of your life is equally important as a role model. I've never bought into that. And it's much more a social psychology concept than a sociology one anyway. Mm -hmm. So 
that was quite fun. And, you know, I've always enjoyed uh, accounts of bad boys and careers that go sort of wrong because of misbehaviour. Um, Big Bill Tilden, the tennis player, um, was a fasc- fascinating instance at George mm. Best. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, ben Carrington, who has been a great spur on my work over the years, because over the years he's been in seminars I've been at, and he always asks the awkward question, and it's often to do with where is race in this, where are black people in this, and, you know, mm. neither your good boys nor your bad boys. They're mostly white. Um and Ben is very good at pinpointing things that you haven't thought about but should think about. Um, so, you know, that was an enjoyable book to write. And as you know, not all books are enjoyable to write. And you can't always tell when you start them whether they're going to be enjoyable or not. Um, and I tried, I suppose, you know, I wanted to be a journalist originally. And it's funny that I should now end up trying to be a playwright um, because I'm sort of trying to put back in the sense of fun and the sense of pleasure of writing that an awful lot of sociological writing is not very good at. Um, I kind of noticed when John and I work that John is very good at putting together a systematic, clear overview of sociological traditions and their relationship to the phenomenon you're looking at. Um and I'm always wanting to sort of need to be reined in because I might like to sort of go gambling about in the field of metaphor. And when we did the third edition of the Olympics, we decided to have chapters on Paris and LA, even though they hadn't happened. And the LA chapter for me was a joy to write because I thought nothing's going on with the bid. They've won the bid. The whole thing is mothballed because they don't have to do it until 1928. So at this time, so I guess it was, 2018 nothing much is happening in the bid so I thought great I'll think about images of LA and I read quite a lot of novels and I looked quite a lot of films about LA Mm -hmm. and thought about some of the recurrent ways of visualizing LA one of which I was fascinated to discover those iconic tall palm trees that everybody takes now as one of the symbols of LA Mm. Uh, they're not indigenous to the area. They were first introduced for the 1932 Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the Olympics is producing its own <laughs> mythologies. Um, so, you know, that that was fun to write. And um, when you get into having the fun of writing, I think possibly the fun of sport starts to come over in a different way on occasion. Um, with the, the present project, which I say is in draft form, Look, we all know there's a real problem with memory, right? We constantly reinscribe our own memories to the extent that for after a while you can be not really totally sure a story is true. I may have just fabricated this over the years by writing. I fully acknowledge that problem, but I wanted to try and get back as honestly as I could to the fabric of the experiential, the first football match I ever went to. You know Nick Hornsby's book? Nick Hornby's book, uh, Fever Pitch. Mm-hmm. There's a little chapter in that. Um, my partner said to me, any of you could have written that book. You know, you all have the same experiences. Um, he was a better writer. Um, but there's a lovely passage where he goes through his first football match and he describes the things he experienced, like the fug of cigarette smoke. And then he uses this phrase, the overwhelming maleness of it all. Um, lovely phrase. And... Um, you know, I suppose what I was trying to get back at so often was when you first encountered this activity, what was it that made an impression? So it's chapters on lots of different sports, stuff I've never written about, like horse racing, um, snooker, darts, going to a live darts game, a snooker match, I should say, at the Wembley Conference Centre with a friend of mine who's a television producer, who I think was somewhat appalled at the sheer seediness of it behind the scenes. On television, it looks very clean and glamorous. And behind the scenes in the social areas, you know, there's pints spilt on the floor and pints half abandoned, cigarette ends everywhere. You know, it's like being at a particularly scuzzy pub sort of at closing time. Maybe, look, maybe very different now, snooker promoters who might happen to hear this podcast. I'm sure it is very different now. This was the 80s. Um, but that's it. You know, I was trying to recover some of that 
visceral response, while recognising that it's problematic because you can have reinvented your response. Can I give one example? The worst thing you can do in English society, almost without exception in masculine society of a certain kind, is change your allegiance to a football club. You know, marriages may come and go, but allegiance to a football club is supposed to be for life. And it's a real grievous thing, which renders you not to be taken seriously as a football fan. <laughs> and you've done it, Gary. I was a football, a Fulham fan in the 60s. And in the last couple of years, I've been a season ticket holder at Crystal Palace. There's a long explanation of this journey, which is in the book. I'm not going to go through it now. But key moment, after having not gone to any football for some years, sometime in the 80s, I went to Fulham because they were about to get promoted from the second division, the old second division. This is three tiers down then, up to the, from the third division to the second division. I'd never seen them win anything. I saw them avoid relegation every year for 10 years of my young life. Um, and they were going to win something. So I went. And I wouldn't say I ran onto the pitch, but I ambled onto the pitch at the end to celebrate. And, you know, I had a little paper cup. I wasn't sort of drinking beer in those. A little paper cup of, let's call it Chardonnay, just to make me sound like a real middle class um, uh, wanker. And... Um, stood many other people cheering in front of the gallery in Craven Cottage, assuming the team would come out and wave at us. You know, this is the most iconic moment of celebration. And the, nobody came out for ages, and two of the players came out holding a giant cardboard check from Barclays, which they've got as a result of promotion. Mm. And we're somehow supposed to cheer this check. And I just, I left. I went down home deflated, depressed, feeling, you know, this is what it's come to. Bitterly cynical. I didn't go for many years. I didn't go back to Craven Cottage. Um, now, David Andrews, who's an academic you both know, is also a Fulham supporter, some years younger than me. He was at this match with his brother. He has a totally different memory of this, right? Um, in fact, it was absolutely celebratory that the team did come out, blah, blah, blah. Ah. Um, now, I think, you know, quite possibly both memories are true. It's just that, you know, he chose to reinscribe to foreground, to contemplate, to think about the celebratory stuff. I chose to narrativise the um, the stuff that epitomised and echoed my work, if you like. Um, well, unfortunately, we have to end it there, Gary. I really appreciate it. But I think that's a wonderful topping and tailing or a narrative equilibrium being restored in a sense. Because you're allowing by telling Dave's story, who will also be on the podcast soon, and your own story, their different valences without privileging one over the other, but also allowing for that oscillation that's so important between all the horrors of pro sports and the fact that it speaks so loudly to so many people in a way that's become more international and more cross-gender than it ever was. There is a great... Uh, line from Carl Perkins, which ought to be quoted more in cultural studies books, which is, if it wasn't for the rocks in its bed, the stream would have no song. And there's not many bits of hope one can cling on to in these days, but that is one of them for me. Thank you, Gary. Thank you.